You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 16th of August 2019 on Monocle 24. Welcome to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up today, a review of the week's big stories from our team at Midori House, including the attempts of the island nations of the Pacific to interest Australia in the seawater lapping around their ankles, the ongoing protests in Russia and what they tell us about a generation who can't remember communism and think they can do better than Putin, and South America braces itself for a possible return of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner to the peak, or at least the vice peak, of Argentinian politics. Plus, there may be no play on the pitch, but the show must go on. From 10.30am until 7 o'clock in the evening, the commentators, summarisers, experts and guests on BBC Radio's Test Match special will look out at a wet field of grass and fill. Fill, fill, fill all day long. And not that anybody at Monocle 24 would know, obviously, but we'll discuss the fine art of padding out dead air, taking inspiration from the Zen Masters of Test Match special with Monocle's senior editor Rob Bound. Plus, we'll take a flip through the latest edition of the Monocle Summer Weekly newspaper with our executive editor Josh Fennett. That's all coming up on Monocle's House View, starting now. And welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Monocle 24 producers Paige Reynolds, Ben Ryland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Uh, For today's programme, we will be taking a deeper look at some of the stories we have been following over the past week here at Midori House. And we are going to start in Funafuti, which is not something we say often. The Tuvalese capital has been hosting this year's Pacific Islands Forum, where climate change has been a major issue, unsurprisingly, given that according to some projections of rising sea levels, Tuvalu is on course to be completely submerged within the next few decades. The forum revealed something of a gap vis-à-vis the perceived urgency of the situation uh, between the Pacific Island nations and Australia. Um, Ben, that does seem to have been the thing, doesn't it? That the Pacific Island nations, known as the Smaller Island States grouping, uh, take this incredibly seriously. Australia's new government, less so. Well, that's right. And I think you could almost arguably say that none of Australia's governments over the past few decades have really taken this very seriously at all, even if some of the prime ministers at the head of some of those governments did seem to ostensibly take it quite seriously. Climate change has been an absolute political fireball for just about every Australian prime minister that I can possibly think of since climate change became a thing, uh, a popular thing, at least in the popular uh, consensus vocabulary. Uh, But I think part of the problem here was that Australia went into these talks with a set of red lines. And yeah, there's that phrase again, red lines, going into some sort of negotiations setting with a set of red lines that are already inside your mind. So when Scott Morrison arrived in Tuvalu, there was already very little space for him to move on lots of different things. And one of those, unsurprisingly, was Australia's reliance on its coal industry. Let's not forget Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister who very famously went in to the nation's parliament in 2017 when he was the treasurer and held up a lump of coal to everyone's surprise. Uh, you're not supposed to have props in the Australian parliament and he was uh, quite quickly uh, chastised for that. Uh, but See, 
held it up. I, I always wondered if he'd done that deliberately or whether he just reached into his pocket for order papers and found a lump <laughs> of coal there for some reason and was just trying to style it out. <laughs> it might have been. It might have been the latter. Uh, but he held it up and he said, "Look, this is coal. Nothing to be afraid of." And then he went off on a big tirade about how the coal industry had done so much for the Australian jobs market and the Australian economy over so many generations for the past hundred years. He's He's put, he's put himself out there as a very good friend of the coal industry. Scott Morrison is not the Prime Minister who was ever going to go to the Pacific Islands Forum and to commit and commit Australia to what had what was supposed to be called the uh, Tuvalu Declaration. It just wasn't going to happen. I mean, Scott Morrison did go to Tuvalu. Uh, his Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, did not. Uh, and while the Prime Minister was in Tuvalu, was overheard remarking at home that they, by which he meant the Pacific Island nations, will continue to survive because many of their workers come here and pick our fruit. Pick oh. our fruit grown with hard Australian enterprise and endeavour. That possibly wasn't the most tactful contribution he could have made at this point? No, and I think it's not tactful at all. Uh, Australia has quite obviously walked into this entire situation with an attitude of of, of dismissiveness. I don't think anyone has taken it that seriously. I, I suspect a lot of them were laughing at the idea of uh, senior politicians having to travel to a place called Tuvalu at all. Um, but look, the saddest part about all of this, I think, was that even though uh, Scott Morrison had committed himself to negotiations and discussions that did, to his credit, stretch over 12 long hours, a lot of what we now know, a lot of the discussions were were, were directed at trying to remove certain pieces of wording from what became the, uh, the, the what was supposed to be the Tuvalu Declaration, but eventually became a communique with qualifications. And a lot of that was spent trying to remove words like crisis uh, and references to the coal industry. So basically, Australia didn't want the end result of this to be something that pointed out that climate change is actually a crisis affecting the entire globe. They wanted to soften that a little bit. They wanted to soften the wording. So so we could, we could walk away with this from this without feeling as if perhaps Australia was starting to take climate change seriously. And Australia's whole aim seems to have been to to boost the spirits of the coal industry, which of course goes completely against what all the all of the Pacific Islands were hoping for. And certainly, I think, uh, makes it very clear as to why Jacinda Ardern came forward and said, well, you know, after all of this, Australia is going to have to answer to the Pacific. And I mean, look, she's absolutely right. Uh, climate science is undeniable. So this might not be a pressing domestic political issue for Australia right now. But Andrew, as you know, you're Australian. <laughs> Bushfires are an annual event in Australia. Uh, indeed so. And most of the time they are deadly and they're always incredibly dangerous. They're only going to get worse. So it may not be a domestic political issue for Scott Morrison personally right now, but give it a couple of years, maybe just give it a couple of months. Undeniably, this is going to happen at some point. And who knows what that blowback is going to look like. Well, as you mentioned, the smaller island nations of the South Pacific did get a slightly more sympathetic hearing from Kiwi Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. We can hear some of what she had to say. If we all took the perspective that if you're small it doesn't matter, we wouldn't see change. Every single little bit matters. And so that is why New Zealand has joined that international call. It is why we speak, I believe, strongly on the international stage around these issues, but ultimately we all have to take responsibility ourselves. My reference was to the fact that Australia has to answer to the Pacific. That is a matter for them. 
That was the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. We should alert our listeners to the fact that our Kiwi studio manager, David Stevens, was literally punching the air while she was talking there. He's, he, he's doing it again. Um, Paige, are you speaking as a Northern Hemispherean? You're now representing the entire peoples of the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> uh, are you slightly more impressed by Jacinda Ardern's view of this than you might have been by Scott Morrison's? Uh, well, I, I, I may be sort of born in the Northern Hemisphere, but lest we forget, I also possess a, a New Zealand passport. So I'm, I'm a oh, little bit... everywhere. I'm a little biased. <laughs> I think I, I would be sort of pumping in the air just like David if I wasn't worried about that making some kind of hideous sound on the microphone. So, <laughs> yeah, Jacinda Ardern, again, just sort of coming out on top. I mean, I think she's just, um, she's quite an impressive political figure and, you know, we're big fans of her here at Monocle. And Andrew, if I may say, I'm feeling slightly depressed. I'm a big fan of Jacinda, but I come from a country where we're having severe problems that relate to climate change as well. My president, Jair Bolsonaro, since he became president, the levels of deforestation have been increasing. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a shame when leaders, they really don't take care of that. And, and, and it's bad for the soft power of a country as well. Uh, just last week, uh, Bolsonaro uh, created a fight with Germany and Norway as well. So they had to remove the funding they do to the Amazon. So, yes, I can totally understand some of the Australians' frustrations with Scott Morrison. Mm, I think, Andrew, it does make it clear, though, this is a people-powered thing. The, mm-hmm. the politicians are only going to follow what they know that their, their uh, electorate is, is believing. So this is only going to become a political issue in Australia when the people, the voters, decide that it should be. So for that reason, it it, it really is up to everyone, not just the politicians. Okay, well, let's move seamlessly along to an electorate where it's slightly less clear that the government is uh, governed one way or the other by the views of its electorate, i.e. Russia, uh, where protests are expected in Moscow for the sixth consecutive weekend. Uh, This is despite heavy-handed countermeasures, including mass arrests, threats of long prison sentences and plain unreconstructed walloping. Uh, The protests will have added piquancy this weekend, today being the 20th anniversary of Vladimir Putin's first appointment as Prime Minister by bibulous then-President Boris Yeltsin, who may not entirely have understood what he was enabling or indeed who Putin even was. Uh, It is a reminder that many of the young folk demonstrating against Putin have known no other leader. Uh, Paige, how important a part of these protests is that, the generational aspect? Because this is an interesting generation of Russians, isn't it? They don't, they barely recall any leader but Putin. They would almost certainly have no meaningful memory of the Soviet Union. Uh, How different are they from the people who were raised in the USSR, as of course men of Putin's generation were? Yeah, I think this stream of protests uh, definitely has a a generational aspect to it. Sort of protests in the 90s were very much sort of the, the the older generation, 50-year-olds, 6-year-olds, who were uh, who were sort of despairing at this sort of free-fall market capitalism that was basically meaning that their quality of life was going down the drain. And then you have sort of the winter of discontent, which happened after Putin was reappointed in 2011. That was very much middle-class, sort of uh, the, the sort of middle-aged population. And now in these protests that we're seeing, you've got a much uh, larger proportion of, of young Russians, like you said, Russians who have only known Putin. And it's quite interesting because I think a few years ago, people were talking about how uh, Putin's millennials were actually uh, quite loyal to Putin. But I think, you know, uh, his popularity, uh, as we've been discussing, has been sort of going uh, downwards for quite a while now. Economic situation's really bad. I think people are quite fed up and he can't spin sort of, uh, you know, like 
Crimea or Ukraine in, in a way that he, he used to be able to. So there's there's definitely this feeling of discontent. And also, I think uh, the sort of one of these sort of uh, foundational myths of, of Putinism was that uh, you have to choose between the wild 90s and the stable noughties. But these sort of kids, these students who were coming out to protest, they didn't know the wild 90s. They weren't around. So to them, it it doesn't really make any sense. And a lot of the people who are in charge now were in charge then during the wild 90s. So if anything, uh, that all that sort of rhetoric almost goes against the people who are, who are espousing it. Uh, we have a clip of what these protests have been sounding like. Uh, Paige, for the benefit especially of those listeners and indeed those hosts of this programme whose Russian is not as good as yours, what are they demonstrating about in that specific instance? Because I think that's one of the things that so far has been overlooked by coverage of this. It's easy enough to understand what these kids might be against. There's a lot of things in Russia uh, to be against. Is there a clear vision yet of what they're for, what they would like Russia to be like? Well, the clip we just heard there, they're saying, who are you hitting? Um, And I think uh, the protests in uh, Moscow over the last sort of five weeks and also the protests that we've seen in Hong Kong, um, a lot of the uh, upset now as the protests have developed is actually about the the police brutality and the mismanagement of a lot of these uh, protests that started quite peacefully. Um, Quite interestingly, I was reading today about how the chants have basically changed from Um, let them run to let them out. So it used to be about the Moscow parliamentary elections, the reason for these uh, protests. So there were lots of opposition candidates who were denied uh, space on the ballot for for Moscow parliamentary elections in September that usually go without uh, much fanfare. But now, due to the you know the mass arrests and the sort of brutal ways that the government has been cracking down, the people are now protesting against the management of these protests. And you can see the same thing in Hong Kong. It was about you know the extradition law, but now it's about Carrie Lam's mismanagement of the entire process. And I think that's that's quite interesting. It really highlights um, how this is very much a sort of structural issue. Uh, to bring everybody else at the table in as well, what do you think we're learning, not just from Russia, but from Hong Kong, as Paige mentions, about the way that the logistics and techniques of protest are evolving? Because the obvious point of comparison, or one obvious point of comparison with the Russia protests is with the colour revolutions of Eastern Europe in the early part of this century, uh, a few of which I covered, especially in uh, what was, well, what is, I think was still technically Yugoslavia when they started, or about what was left of Yugoslavia, but in Serbia and later in Albania. But that was all organised pre-social media. It was organised online to a large extent, but there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Twitter, there, are, there, there weren't variations on those. What difference is that making? Well, it's, it's obviously it's much easier to arrange a protest now in the age of mass communication. You can you can do that that quite easily. But uh, I think what's more remarkable is that the nature of protesting hasn't actually changed all that much. You can have all these tools at your disposal, but at the end of the day, what really matters is this deep political belief in in young people often that uh, we can make a change and perhaps a sense of responsibility that indeed we must make a change. You see it in the young people in Hong Kong and you see it in the young people in Russia and various other places around the world as well, various other movements that I'm sure we haven't spoken about enough. But uh, that idea doesn't just 
come about because of social media, because of, of technology. It's, it has to be built within the spirit of the various communities at hand. And I think what we're seeing is that, as has probably always been the case, we tend to underestimate young people no matter where they are in the world. I would agree with what Ben was saying. It's definitely a, a, a young people having this kind of fervour and this desire for, for political change. But I do think that the digital infrastructures we have now have enabled the protest to, protesters to be able to go about this differently, particularly in two states that are quite authoritarian about internet usage. Um, so in Hong Kong, uh, there have been reports that protesters have been communicating and uh, assembling through apps such as Tinder, uh, Pokemon Go, which is a, which is a <laughs> game app and and the app that you know both uh, the Russian protesters and young protesters in Hong Kong have used is Telegram which is an encrypted messenger service and actually in in regards to Russia there's actually a Telegram bot um, that's now offering legal advice to to young protesters that have been arrested um, and uh, I think that those kind of sort of different uh, social medias are definitely having an effect it's, on... It's, it's, it's weird, isn't it, to think that we have got people. past the point with social media, I think, where, say, 10, 15 years ago, the, the instinctive response of any authoritarian regime might just have been to pull the plugs on it and shut it all down. But I think now you would probably run the risk of even bigger protests for doing that than you would by just uh, continuing to govern in a, an inept and corrupt fashion that prompts protests of a more standard size. Uh, and, and one thing I would like to mention about protests, so I, I, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I can compare directly to Russia and Hong Kong, but one thing that protesters they need to understand, they need to have a clear aim because uh, we had protests in Brazil in 2013, which in some ways uh, it was the downfall of President Dilma Rousseff and the rise of a far-right uh, government. And the reason for that, because the, the protesters, they split in several groups. So then what started because of the price of public transport, in the end, he was complaining about everything. So it was quite perhaps something that we see in France as well, the Gilets Jaunes, you know, which is, mm. there's a big division. So, but again, I'm, not, I'm not, not sure if I can compare directly with what's happening in Russia. Well, seeing as how Fernando has invoked Brazil there, let's now move seamlessly along to South America, specifically at Argentina, the president of which Maurizio Macri probably assumed until last weekend that he was assured of a casual saunter to victory in this coming October's presidential election. Last week, Weekend, however, he was roundly spanked in a primary election by his rival, Alberto Fernandez, who is running in cahoots with former president and former first lady, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who is attempting to add vice president to her resume. Markets went instantly into sell what you can and burn what you can't mode, wiping another 30% off the already whimpering peso. Macri has since announced some emergency measures. Uh, Fernando, why didn't anyone see the Fernandez-Kirchner surge coming? Because everybody seems to have been surprised by that, uh, including Fernandez and Kirchner. Well, I think people were surprised, you know, by the large margin that Alberto Fernandez won 15 points. I actually, I did think they would, they were going to win to beat Macri uh, for a simple reason that the economy in Argentina is not doing well at all. Unemployment is rising. You know, the, the levels of poverty were increasing. And let's remember when Mauricio Macri was voted in 2015, 
shifting was precisely because... It was his whole thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm a liberal, I'm a, I'm a centrist, uh, you know, and, and of course, uh, especially in her late ha- latest years in power, uh, the economy in Argentina almost crashed under uh, Cristina Kirchner. Uh, but 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 it's, it's fascinating that uh, Mauricio Macri, after his loss, uh, he, he did a series of measures. Uh, but to be honest, his measures are something that Cristina Kirchner would probably do. They were very populist, you know, to increase the minimum wage, income tax cuts, increases in welfare, uh, froze, to froze a petrol prices. I think voters will not really believe uh, in him in a way. I, I, I think it's going to be very hard for him to win uh, in the first round. Or, or they'll ask if all these ideas are so clever, why didn't you do them before? Uh, you mentioned there's something I did want to pick up on because it's a, a thing I find curious about the decision that Argentina's voters appear on the verge of making. You're quite right to point out that Maurizio's Maurizio Macri's whole thing was, uh, I'm a sensible centrist, I will fix Argentina's economy. And so far, at least, he has not done that. But as you correctly point out, going back to Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, for all that she's the vice presidential candidate, not the presidential one, given her record on maintaining Argentina's economy seems a weird decision for Argentina's voters to make. Well, that's true, as I said, in her latest years in power. But the reality is, since when her husband was in power, Nestor Kirchner, uh, the Argentine economy actually was doing pretty well. It was one of the countries that you know grew the most. Uh, the, the poverty levels in Argentina really, really dropped. Uh, and I think some people, they have kind of this memory uh, of it. And as I said, in the last years, there's been a few problems uh, here and there. And let's Let's be clear here. Alberto Fernandez is different than Cristina. I mean, okay, well, they're 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 very similar. They're in the similar party, but he's a more of a of a centrist man. I think he can work with opposition parties as well. And she was quite smart to decide to be vice president because I don't think she would win an election if you were if she was going to be the candidate. Uh, I have to wonder, Fernando, if a lot of this has to do with when you have a situation where a country is simply voting for change. I can think back to an election not too long ago when uh, Tony Abbott won an election in Australia. And, of course, no one in Australia, I wouldn't say no one, few people, few people in Australia would admit to actually voting for, in favour of, Tony Abbott. I think a lot of that was a vote against the government that came before him. And it's a similar situation, I suppose, that we've seen in the United States, where you've got a reaction against a certain other person, and that ends up taking the form of of Donald Trump. Uh, And it, it does seem to me that in many, many cases, a country is hungering for something different. They're not really, there's not a consensus on what they want different. And then that something else takes the form of something that, or a government, a new candidate who might not be the wisest choice, but at least provides some alternative. Is that where Argentina is right now? They're just, perhaps they're just feeling a little bit lost. The electorate isn't really sure what they can grasp onto or what really the core issues should be. Absolutely. And and the left in Argentina, I don't think they produced like a name uh, that could be kind of a, a third way uh, in a way as it happened with Macron, for example. So their kind of more realistic choice would be to come back uh, to the kind of Kirchner camp, even though they have a different candidate, Alberto Fernandez. So, yeah, it's, it, it is... Uh 
quite interesting to see that. But th- this this is populism all over, though, isn't it, Paige? And I guess this is something you need to be worried about, about where things may be going in Russia. It's, that it, it's one thing to decide that we want change, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to decide. But what we often see from uh, electorates, at least in recent years, is the equivalent of deciding to uh, change your furniture and interior decor by setting fire to the house. Well, Ukraine is probably a good example at the moment of that, isn't it? With Zelensky, although that seems to... I had my, I'll admit, I had my doubts voting for a television star without any political experience yeah, and an entire government yeah. behind him with even less experience. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? But it does seem that it's uh, so far so quite a positive far, so, story. So far, so good with Zelensky. I think a lot of people were rightly sceptical. Um, but, I mean, what I would say is that he hasn't been in power for that long and I think he's only had a parliamentary mandate for around a month now. So I think there's still... Um, uh, he's made promises and uh, he hasn't had, you know, hasn't been in, lo- in time long enough or in there long enough, I don't think, to um, to fulfil them. But whether he will be able to is, I think, still something people are a little a little sceptical of. I mean, I think he ran a boot camp for his... Uh, he did. I wish his, I had a been his a political advisors because none of them had ever been in politics in before. In a spa so. town, no less. <laughs> uh, we will, doubtless, on future episodes of Monocle's House View, visit upon President Zelensky the rigorous scrutiny he merits for... Uh, for the moment, however, that is all for the moment. Uh, Paige Reynolds, Ben Ryland and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you. We will be back shortly with Rob Bound and Josh Fennett. Welcome back to Monocle's House View. I'm still Andrew Muller and I'm joined in the studio now by Monocle's executive editor, Josh Fennett, and its senior editor, Rob Bound. Here in London, it is day three of the second test of this summer's Ashes series between Australia and England, a sentence which will make almost no sense to listeners in the non-cricketing world, but do stick with us. As is traditional, it has been raining in London, which means two things. One, that Australia's triumphal, inevitable march to victory along the Path cleared by the swishing bat of Steve Smith may be thwarted. Two, that broadcasters covering proceedings, especially on the BBC's Test Match special, have been forced to resort to other means of filling the airtime. Um, Rob, we should also mention, for the benefit of non-cricketing listeners, that the the broadcasters of Test Match special are sort of they're, they're Zen masters at this, aren't they? Talking yes. for hours because the thing is, with radio as well, you can't stop talking, uh, <laughs> as, as we have all learned by. <laughs> doing this <laughs> unless you have a nice sting i like the well, well, uh, <laughs> glad you brought you in your own little piano chord exactly but, but you, you can't if, if you are broadcasting on television when nothing much is happening you, you can could, show some pictures you, of the covers the crowd exactly you can say to people look you're seeing what we're seeing it's raining there's a pigeon yeah but but, exactly. on, but, on, but on radio you have to keep going so in space there is nowhere to no one to hear you scream a bit like on testament special andrew you have to fill fill and fill some how, more how do they do it rob what is their secret well i mean on on Wednesday, the first day of the second test um, at Lords, just up the road from our studios here, um, it rained all day. So the BBC, t- TMS, Test Match Special, broadcast from 10.30 in the morning until 7 o'clock at night without a single ball being bowled, <laughs> without a single phase of play um, being enacted. Um, so they talk about they talk about the quality of the rain, uh, the depth of it, the wetness of the rain. Um, they talk perhaps about some things swishing past on the uh, on the roads outside the cricket ground. Um, maybe they play in a, an interview with a, with, a, with a test cricketing great, normally an Aussie or, or, or an Englishman because it's the ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they fill. Then maybe it's lunch. They come 
come back, maybe a glass of Chablis has been taken, and then they get a bit <laughs> silly and creative, and, and they start talking a bit again about the wetness of the rain. And, of course, it's a great tradition on Test Match, special, as you and some of our listeners will know, um, for listeners to send in cakes. This morning, during some of the disrupted play, a young eight-year-old girl called Izzy was invited onto the programme with uh, Ag- uh, Jonathan Agnew, the chief cricketing correspondent at the BBC, and John- Jeff Boycott, the legendary curmudgeon and English test batsman, uh, to taste the cake. And it was fairly partridge-ish radio um, but normally normally even the filling on TMS is emollient like a, like a perfect Victoria sponge because I, I did want to put it to you Rob um, given that test match special as we've established is basically a studio full of middle-aged white men talking about nothing for hours and bloody hours <laughs> they basically invented podcasting didn't they, <laughs> they yeah, yeah exactly I think uh, exactly Brian Johnson and, and Brian and, and John Arlott need some uh, serious uh, finders fees for, for the genre that is podcasting with which I think you're familiar I mean, given that we are uh, in this uh, studio, pr- professional broadcasters, okay. uh, you know, p- pause for gales of audience laughter there. Um, what, what techniques have we developed among the three of us here gathered for filling up dead air? Do you just talk very slowly using you can. Un- unnecessarily you, superfluous verbiage? You can do that. I don't know whether any of the shows on Monocle 24 um, have been uh, prey to um, all all filler, no killer. I remember when we started the radio <laughs> station seven years, eight years ago, don't know how long it was ago, um, some of our editors who are dearly departed of this parish had to talk about sort of Finnish scissors, a Finnish scissor <laughs> manufacturing factory for about four hours. Um, and it sort of became a running joke whether you could get fiscars into the uh, conversation. Is this the point at which you introduce the only person in the room who hosts two shows a week about design? <laughs> That's right. literally part of my professional remit. Well, Andrew, going to your point about how you fill dead air, I think sometimes you've got to become a bit of a politician and you get asked a question... By say Marcus, our Finnish, uh, to come back to the theme, uh, broadcaster and the host of the menu, um, about what your take on the Houthi rebels or the uh, fragile situation in Sri Lanka is when you haven't done your research and perhaps that's not your home turf. I think you've just got to sometimes answer the question you weren't asked that you do know about. I think that's good advice, right? That's the way to steer it, yeah. The the, the phrase only time will tell can be helpful uh, (laughs) in in, in situations like that. when, When things like this get talked about or indeed when things like this happen, I can still wake screaming in the night recalling Several million years ago, when I, I used to host a very late-night radio show on an inner-city community station in Sydney, um, both the turntables broke down. This is how long ago that was. The cartridge machine wasn't working at all. And I, I, can hear, I, can hear, I can hear tweens googling as we speak. It, it, was, it was past midnight, so there was nobody I could call, and I had four hours to go. Um, I, I would like to apologise, not that I imagine anybody was still listening by the time I clocked off, but apologies if any of those people, by some astounding coincidence, are listening now. What did you do? Did you sort of uh, did you put on a continuity announcement and leg it out to the car and get a tape? Uh, no, as <laughs> as I recall, it was basically a very slow, extremely detailed recitation of my entire my entire personal life history from 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 birth until that. I, uh, on the subject of people in that's ba- not filling, that's hagiography. <laughs> well, I know. On the subject of people inadvertently inventing things, I, I basically laid down the ground which that Norwegian bloke with the beard has profitably tilled ah, yes. ever since. Um, 
So yeah, but we. I think we should. We, we'll move off this subject. But I. I, I do want to. Uh, I thought I, this was going to get very meta. We we're just going to sort of waffle on. It's a real get modern. out clause here. And unfortunately, we don't have seven hours to fill. That would be brilliantly meta to fill seven hours <laughs> by talking about how TMS fill for seven hours. Yeah. I. But because it is available internationally, genuinely, if you are listening to this in a non-cricketing part of the world, even especially if nothing about cricket makes any sense to you at all, I do recommend tuning into TMS on a day, and it's very important you do this on a day when literally nothing is actually happening on the field. Um, this is where my American wife, I try and explain the rules of cricket, and, and we, we ramble through various bits, and I realise actually maybe it is a quite a complicated um, sport, when she turns around to me and goes, and they do all this on the back of a horse? <laughs> I don't know. There is, there is a, there is a. If only they did, that would be amazing. Um, th- there is a song by the very fine Australian band called UMI called "Explaining Cricket," and it's, it's act. The song is about the sort of strange detached view of reality you get when you're extremely drunk and you can't communicate what you're actually thinking to people and the payoff line in the chorus is this is like explaining cricket to Americans <laughs> um, that's excellent I love to know with what that rhymes uh, it's I, I think there's a bit of a soft rhyme of again in the previous okay. line to Americans. Uh, but anyway, I feel like the presenters of TMS, we have deviated somewhat uh, from the point at hand. Um, so to return to another point entirely, that's a seamless segue. Uh, Monocle's <laughs> Summer Weekly, the second episode, second edition, Josh, is out now. Uh, yeah, it came What's up, in it? Uh, well, lots of things, Andrew, including a few things that you've written yourself. But I like to think this is the way that uh, some of our readers, when they're on the beach, when they're relaxing, when they're maybe away from the boardroom or the company that they run or the uh, drudgery of sitting in a cubicle. I don't know them. I haven't met them <laughs> all. In a cubicle. <laughs> Not all of them are on the loo. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that this is their way of vamping or escaping or getting out of those awkward time-filling conversations. So it is a... Berliner size, big, beautiful, bold uh, newspaper. It looks really good, doesn't it? It is. It's a beautiful product. And um, the idea is that we follow our readers to the beach, not in a creepy way. (laughs) (laughs) And that we're able to tell... we massage sun cream into into their thighs. In a journalistic sense. Only certain subscribers get it. I I, I want listeners to understand fully that I left this studio some time ago (laughs) and am no longer participating. So we've got some we've got some great stories. We've got some great scoops. Uh, we've got some quite serious stuff in the front of the magazine. We profile a few British people who are applying for passports elsewhere. Why on earth would they do that with the wonderful weather and the uh, unfractious political climate here? We have an interview with the Tunisian presidential hopeful. Uh, the the less hopeful thing about him, perhaps is how he's achieving power. We ask him some tough questions. Mm. He doesn't altogether answer that brilliantly. Uh, but we've also got some great fun stuff. We've got recommendations, place to, places to go. I just wanted to draw attention to one story, which I think is particularly fun, which is a, uh, a trend in Milan for taking over old dance halls where young and old people are strutting their stuff and uh, the new generation, the young generation of Milanese who grew up in this city that's all about fashion and design have got their dancing shoes on and are patronising these kind of like... It's like line dancing, it's country dancing, isn't it? It's very much like yeah. that, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got, we've got a great profile of one of these old kind of uh, ballrooms that's been turned into a, a hip young place. And uh, just because I, I figure we're running out of time, Rob, favourite dance move? Uh, I like the robot, obviously. <laughs> 
It's a bit like my name. <clears throat> well, that's our Friday evening sorted. Uh, that, that, is, that is all for today's show. Uh, Rob Bound and Josh Fennett, thank you for joining us in the studio. Monocle's House View was produced this week by Daniel Bache. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Coming up at 1900, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.